Okay, there's the thumb, and I should say that some of us are more live than others. It's getting to be not as funny as it used to be. I will say right off the bat, um, um, I'll address my my condition here because old people like to talk about their medical problems. Uh, All of you on the Internet, let me just let you know how humbled we are and grateful we are. Karen, we don't know where you're from, Karen, but you stunned us, and we don't even know what to say to you. Mark and Stephanie, as usual, are foundation stones for this church, and um, uh, we're going to go through a little difficult time. Uh, But we'll figure out how to do it, and we're pretty confident that we will. Fortunately, I collapsed just as soon as I got Medicare, so... I want to thank every one of you that are participating in this Ponzi scheme, especially you younger ones. I don't know why you're laughing, but boy, gosh, I'm really pleased that you're, uh, you're in the barrel pretending it's going to be there when you get there. It just is no possibility. You know that, right? My father used to ch- chuckle at me all the time. He, I asked him one day how much money he had put into Social Security, and it was something like 20000 and he died at almost 91, he retired at 59, started drawing out Social Security at 62, along with his pensions from federal service and state. He worked for the federal government railroad system in the state of Missouri railroad system. So he had a state pension, a federal pension, and then he had Social Security. And he figured out one day, just messing around with his calculator, that he had drawn out over a million dollars and put in 20,000. And he thanked me for being a participant in that. He thought that was very funny. I thought it was not funny until now. Now I think it's hilarious. Okay, well, uh, let me run down here really fast. I have a short list of things I need to cover. Just one page of lists. Quickly, uh, um, I have, as you know, atrial fibrillation, and atrial fibrillation does not go away. It is a progressive disease. Essentially, it is ectopic beats and premature beats or intrusion beats that cause the house, or the house, the heart to go into a uh, dysfunction. And I am beginning to learn all of this, all of the, all of that I can about the heart and the brain. What fascinates me about it, I should say this, is the community, the heart-brain communications. As you study heart rhythm variabilities, which is what I have, even though I went through an operation, a catheter ablation, I think that I had a segmental ablation, but I might have had a continuous circumferential ablation for those of you on the Internet that have this condition. Uh, I really have great uh, uh, understanding of it now. There's only one way to understand this, and that is to have it fascinating for me to watch the the uh, electrophysiologists that treat this and I, I need to say real quickly Dr. Wu of Alaska Heart Institute was my doctor and he was incredibly compassionate on me he put he fit me in him and his staff when they didn't need to do it and I was progressing at such a rate I was headed towards persistence from paroxysmal on Again, that won't mean much to any of you, but one is an intermittent where you, where uh, the paroxysmal, where you convert back to a natural sinus rhythm on your own sometimes, or you're chemically converted. I was coming into the hospital consistently, and it was getting shorter and shorter, and the episodes were getting stronger and stronger. And Dr. Wu found me in the emergency room in a, in a position of weakness. I'm curled up in a ball. It took me almost five hours or better to be chemically converted. They gave up, actually, on the calcium blockers, the cartism, the diltiazem, which are drugs they use to try to get you back into a natural rhythm if you're paroxysmal. They gave up on that, and they went to beta blockers, uh, which is an indication that they were leaving rhythm control, going to rate control. Well, rate control is a characteristic of somebody who has a persistent condition. So I was advancing quickly. He recognized that. Uh, His staff recognized it, and they fit me in before his vacation behind a couple of patients that were in a lot worse condition than me. And it was an act of mercy, and I'll never forget it. So, 
Anyway, where was I? Yes, there's a the hard brain communicates, which fascinates me, and they communicate in four ways. The only one that I'm going to study, I'll have to study all four of them and see if I can raise my level with respect to cardiology. Uh, the one way that fascinates me is electromagnetic. The heart and the brain communicate essentially with a radio frequency system. And there is an ascension and descension. In other words, there's that that used to believe that the brain was hierarchical. There is a hierarchy here. And the brain had authority over the heart. That's not true. They are equal partners. It's fantastically interesting to me because of of uh, what Christ says in Revelation 2.23. He says, I search the, high, the hearts and the minds. And I've always been wondering what hearts. I know what the mind meant. But what does the heart mean? Well, I'm finding out that the heart has, uh, has incredible complexity. And again, it directs the brain what to do. And the brain directs it. Like I said, there is an ascension and a descension between the heart and the brain. That which descends from the brain and that which ascends from the heart. That's uh, Proverbs 30 and John 3. Christ talks about his ascending and his descensions. And it fascinated me to see that this the, the cardiological field has figured out that there's something going on in the heart. So that's going to be my, my interest. Uh, I will bore you to death with it. But I think it's unbelievably Fascinating. It's marvelous, this evolutionary process, what it can do. It's absolutely incredible. No one can look at what's going on in just the heart and the brain, the interconnectivity, the spinal column, the vagus nerve, the hormonal interaction, and the electromagnetic, all of these things that are occurring, the neurological system that's in the heart. You, you cannot ignore that. It's incredible. And, of course, it's not taught anywhere except in, in medical school. And even then, it's attenuated to remove all the theological implications. Another thing that we have to talk about, and we will, because I've brought it up in a great deal over the last few weeks, not the last few weeks, but prior to the last few weeks, is Newton's third law of motion. Because Newton's third law of motion, as you know, if you shoot a handgun, for every reaction there is an equal and opposite reaction. And that is so important because that's cause and effect. When you recognize that there is a cause and effect to everything in the creation. There's this interconnectivity. And here's your Bible that is the most interconnected Manuscript that anyone could even imagine. It's ridiculously interconnected. My heart and brain is interconnected with my mind. And so there's Newton figured out that there is cause and effect everywhere in the creation. And then, as you know, I spent a lot of time comparing gravity and light because Newton looked at gravity and said that it is not a particle-based structure. It is, in fact, an intelligent agency. So he assigned intelligence or consciousness to gravity. And, and Christ attaches intelligence to light. He says, I am the light of life. I am the primal or the non-photon, the non-particle light that causes life. So he said he is light. He also said that he holds things in his hands. And that is gravity. So we'll begin to deal with that as along with ventricular dyssynchrony and premature ventricular contractions. And sympathetic and parasympathetic activity in the heart. Let me explain to you why that's important to me is because I could not make it to Wednesday morning and I knew it. Wednesday morning I called the doctor's office and I said, I need to have a schedule and a, a catheter ablation. I would like a segmental ablation, but if you cannot do that, I will take the continuous circumferential ablation. I will submit to whichever pre, uh, uh, process that you feel is applicable. But I had already talked to Dr. Wu about these two, and he had given me his opinion, and I immediately could tell that it was incredibly intelligent and complicated. I told his nurse, I have a feeling that his skill is commensurate with his intelligence. 
And I happened to be to guess right there. It was not a guess. It was a reasoned conclusion. But I am in, I'm right on the verge of atrial fibrillation. And I'm not going to make it to Wednesday. Let me go back a second. I called his nurse and said, can I have a a surgery date? And it took a lot to get me to do it because you're going to destroy heart tissue with electro uh, with an electrical, electrical probe. In other words, they're going to run radio frequency through a, a hot wire, and that hot wire, to, to make it shallow and simple, is going to burn hot, uh, heart tissue. Where I'm getting intrusive broadcasted information that's interfering with my normal heart rate and causing this uh, fibrillation, which is an incredible experience to have your heart do that. Again, you can't explain it. You have to go through it. I wish none of you to have that experience. And I I share it with millions of people, and uh, we know what the others are thinking. But anyway, she told me, she said, we can get you in on the 22nd of August. And I celebrated. I said, okay, I'll take it. And she said, and then we'll schedule your surgery for the 2nd of September. And I went, oh, I'm not going to make it. I can tell that I'm not going to make it. I'm going to be back in the E-E-E-R. Isn't that a song? Back in the E-E-E-R? Somebody can sing it later. But there's nothing I can do to stay out of that. And they're not converting me as easily as they were. I'm headed towards the, the electrical system where they, not, they render you unconscious now. And then they blast you. And if that doesn't work, I could stay in there for days while they try everything they can, hoping that I'll go on antiarrhythmic drugs, and it's a brutal process. And if I'm persistent, the unfortunate problem is is that it's the, the statistical success rate of a catheter ablation just goes horribly bad. I go from 70 to 80 percent. Some doctors have 90 percent rates of success, but they always seem to be picking very healthy people. One thing about Dr. Wu is that he did not pick healthy people. I know one of his patients was my roommate, Roger. We spent the day together and the night after my surgery. Roger was a military pilot. We both went through the earthquake together. We both went through West High School together. We knew the same people. I'm watching a baseball game down in in my section of the bowels of the institution that's the that's providence hospital he's upstairs watching the same baseball game so when they wheel me in i'm worried if i watch a baseball game will i annoy that my roommate turns out it was roger and we talked for 12 hours Uh, his condition makes mine look like a walk in the park but dr Wu took him and got him into sinus rhythm which was not easy to do and it's a long story i'll tell you that story again sometime but I am talking to Dr. Wu's nurse, Megan, who, and I just told her there's no way I'm going to make it to the second because I'm already battling. I'm, I'm using all the parasympathetic uh, techniques that I have. That's the calming, resting uh, influence on the heart from the brain versus the sympathetic, which is the fight-flight influence. So I'm trying to keep myself calm I'm drinking water. I'm getting my postural um, structure in the best possible position so I'm not throwing my heart forward. That's an AFib. People can't sleep on their right side, or left side, sorry, because if you sleep on your left side, it throws your heart against your, uh, against your chest structure. And, it, and it, they do that to take pictures of it, but for us people with atrial fibrillation, it is a trigger for that. So I'm making sure that my heart is in the right position as best I can. I'm trying to get myself in a parasympathetic condition. I've done that now for two days. I know I'm not going to make it. And so she puts the phone down, goes and asks Dr. Wu, and she comes back and said, we'll schedule you tomorrow at 8 in the morning. Now all i got to do is drink cold water, except I can't. No water past 5 o'clock. I can't eat anything. 
So I can't get any magnesium. I can't get any potassium in me. And there's nothing I can do but sit there at the computer and get myself into this condition so I can make it. And we make it. Gloria and I get up. I got up at six. I had three hours of sleep in two nights. And I get into the, uh, into the uh, uh, prepping area for this particular operation down in the depths. It's an unbelievable facility. They have the greatest television you could ever imagine. And it's absolutely huge and the definition is ridiculous. And they don't just pick you up and move you anymore. I mean, Christopher knows all of this, some of you do. They have they essentially turn your bed into a hovercraft. They got a pad, they just fill it full of air and they slide you over off the side of the table onto the floor and pick you back up. No, they don't, but they could have. I'm floating, it's really cool. And then they lie to you. The anesthesiologist lied to me. Uh, she's a wonderful lady, but a really poor liar because she was grinning too much. I stole her pen. I said, at least I'm getting something out of this. I still have her pen. It's one of my treasures. I wouldn't give it back. I'm always looking for pens. But anyway, um, she told me, she said, I'm going to put this on you. It'll help. It'll calm you down. I said, oh, you're lying to me. She said, I'm not. It's, a, it's oxygen. I said, no, it's not. She said, actually, it is. Watch out for this hand over here, though, while I distract you. It's kind of a pen and teller maneuver. In any event, uh, I came through, and uh, I'm so grateful to all of those people. And now I'm interested in that. And I, I have done, before I even went in, I have read thousands of pages of clinicals on cardiology and this particular condition. Everything I can read, I have found it. So naturally, I'm going to burden you with it. I think you'll find it fantastically interesting. Really, really fast, Bill called me the other day and he said, hey, you need to mention that Mary and Martha connects to Exodus 17, 1 through 7. He's absolutely right. The key to Exodus 1 through 7 is, is God among us or not? And I'm just throwing out, I'm just spitballing this stuff. And Mary and Martha say, had you been here, our brother would, would not have died, which is Exodus 1 through 17. So I, I wanted to make sure that passed that along to you. Uh, I also had wonderful letters from you folks out there. One lady, I wish I could remember her, was so thrilled because she figured out that Abel is killing lambs. And you have to ask yourself, well, obviously he's killing these lambs because of Genesis 3.21. But how did he know to do it? He's replicating what God did to Adam and Eve, his parents. So he must have got it from them. How many is he killing? He's killing lots of them because by the time he's in his 30s, in fact, both of them are 33, they're twins, Cain and Abel. So why is he killing them? He's killing them because they have to be sacrificed on that altar and each one of his siblings by then again it could be as many as a hundred of them you know they're very fertile and there's multiple births so you could have 15 year olds or whatever age you can imagine and he's 33 and so he is killing animals who else is killing animals no one else but him so you have to pay attention. That was a wonderful uh, question that she wrote, and I'm, I'm uh, very proud of her and all the rest of them, too. We'll get to that in a minute. A couple of last things. If you've noticed, there is couple, two things happened this week. One is that, uh, I, and I shouldn't watch these shows because I end up throwing things at television, but they have come up with a concept that they're going to push really heavily in the next year or so that uh, I can, uh, we can take your memory, just your memories, and we can put it into a computer and make a uh, artificial life form that looks like you, but is not you, it's just your memories, but you won't know it's anything but you because you think the memories are you. Your memories are not you. I can prove that to you. Name me every kid in your second grade class. Ready, go. You can't do it, I can't do it. But, draw their faces. You do not have any memories of your elementary school. I have no memories really um, before the age of six of any significance. 
So I am not the composite of my memory. What am I? Who am I? See, this is the, this is why I say to you all the time that existence has to be eternal and existence is tied to your will. Your will is important here. I have dogs. I love my dogs. I want my dogs. They're living beings. They're defined nefesh kaya. They are eternal. I, I don't want a replica of Abigail. I want Abigail. That's what I want. That's what he will do. He's not going to give me a reproduction. He's going to give me the real one. He makes real life, not fake life. So we're going to have fake life put in front of us as if it is real life. And kids are going to believe it. It's fake. It's counterfeit life. Your will must be there in order for you, your personhood, your qualia, your self-awareness to be there. Without the will, there is no existence. So will and existence are important. Finally, for, to, for this list here. Oh, I should bring up, uh, I'm going to take on anesthesiology and consciousness with regard to will. Because the anesthesiologists believe that they destroy your consciousness. Not all of them, but they're on the, what they call it, the Theodore talks or whatever it is. And they say to you that when we put you under anesthesiologists, we have killed you. Uh, under anesthesia, we have killed you. We've destroyed your consciousness. Now, it's nonsensical, but it has millions of views. So, having gone through it and having come out with a pen, I know it's not true. I have physical proof. I'll bring it. But in any event, that's a simple thing to, to declare uh, or to... Uh, just reach out its absurdities and lay them on the table. Uh, Christian influencers, what an incredibly stupid thing to call people. Have you been following Christian influencers? Okay, Christian influencers are in the news now because they're all declaring that they're no longer Christian. And now Christian influencers are called this because they are musical entertainers. And they influence Christians with their music which is a complete misappropriation of what music is for. Study what the musicians of Israel did and why they were rebuked. And you will find out what music is really for. It's hardly ever done correctly anymore. And will not be done correctly as we go towards the end of the age of the Gentiles. But these young men and young women have decided at age 21 or 20 that they're no longer Christians because they can't solve simple theological problems. Here, like, why does God let people die? And if you can't do that, if you don't understand existence and will and you don't understand the interconnectivity, the third law of Newton, the cause and effect of the Bible, if you don't have any idea what that is, then you'll be blown away at some point and you'll start saying that, I don't understand God and I don't care. That is what it does when you are an idiot. And all of these entertainers are what? Not very smart. They have no doctrine. And so they have thin roots and they die when the sun hits them. So, okay, that was my rant. How'd I do? Now I've got to hurry, go really fast. August the 4th, 2019, lecture discussion number 73 on the book of Joel, except it's not August the 4th, is it? That's when I wrote this. Actually, August the 2nd and 3rd. I don't know what day it is. I have to ask Lori and go to the calendar now. What day is it? It's the 18th. Wow. Right off the beginning here, I need to say this. You know that there was an incredible genius. Dr. Peter from Australia. I had got a letter that he has passed away. And I'll talk about it at some point in the future. So I'm not really certain where I was going to start the lecture today. My first consideration is to take this wheelbarrow full of mail that I have that I've neglected. It's, it just keeps building and it comes every day. And as usual, the vast Internet audience is, is thinking deeply, which is wonderful. It's my diabolical plan after all. And thus I feel predisposed to encourage the fruit of my scattering of questions because I've scattered questions for years. Well, they're beginning to do what? Ask questions. It's fantastic. And they're, and they're bringing them to me by the, by the wheelbarrow full. And, they're, and so I've got all these questions now, irrespective of the revel, revelance, 
relevance, sorry, to Revelation 1 through 3 and to Joel. For example, I have Delmar here. I can't read it all. Actually, I actually get real letters, analog letters, in case you were wondering. But I get a lot of digital letters, too. And I love the analog letters because I can make marks on them. But Delmar just really quickly started asking questions. And I need to read a little bit of it so that you can understand I bet, as best I can. That's not, not the one. I have three of them from him. Okay, I know you know about this because most of the notes were from a sermon teaching that you had given. So he had, he had gone through and found something that I had done quite a while ago. Except in this teaching you had focused more on the crimson worm and not the gourd tree. I don't remember you saying anything. It's a gourd plant, actually. I don't remember you saying anything about the fruit of the gourd tree being deadly. Well, the fruit of the gourd tree is poisonous in Jonah 4. But I, I believe it is. I do not have my notes that you said the shade and comfort of the tree was deadly. Then he goes on to say, and then the questions became came flooding in. He was wanting to know law and grace, truth and life, blessing and cursing, life and death, light and darkness and free will. And he thinks that he still, he said, I see the Jews are still trusting in the shade and the comfort of the corrupt gourd plant. I think that's absolutely correct. And then he, then he takes a little different track here. Should we find it strange that Satan is found in this tree? Was there any fruit on this tree before Eve looked at it? Why didn't Adam cut the town down this tree? Did Adam know this tree was necessary? Why no big red signs? How can this tree be good? And again, when you said, just what did Adam know? And I still know that I could look the rest of my life in the flesh and never get it. So let me apologize to you instead. And in the other letter, the same thing. He's asking all these questions about the two trees. He ends up concluding. Let me see if I can find it for you. Um, Delmar, you gave me just way too many letters to keep track of. But he, uh, he said, uh, if we approach the two trees from the front, well, let me go. If we approach the two trees on Calvary from the backside, we see a dead tree with no roots planted in the dirt, crushing the head of the old giant. If we approach the two trees from the front, we see Jesus Christ crucified, the tree of life suspended in the air. The true trees are nailed together. Were these two trees separated in the garden? If they were separated, what separated them? I feel there is something wonderful here. So he's just asking lots of very valuable questions. And at the same time, I had others who wrote me on, this, on the same subject. So that's an example of what I get. And uh, it's incredible. So let's just take a, a run at it. Delmar, and he's from Ohio. And he had been contemplating the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good from evil. Of the tree of life, Adam could freely eat, as with every tree of the garden. He could. He had life, so more life is just a redundant life. However, as you know, there was placed on the tree of knowledge of good from evil a prohibition. You shall not eat. Delmar is asking, is this a good tree? Is it? And in addition to the interdiction or the forbiddens, the consequences establishing certain death. If you eat of that day that you eat, you will die, surely die, certain death. Therefore, the contrast is placed before Adam. Life and death, tree of life, tree of death. Heard me say that hundreds of times. And I've been over the subject perhaps more, many hundreds of times, hopefully hundreds of times, because a comprehensive, exhaustive understanding of all that's in Genesis 1 through 4 is essential to you. If you have it, you're, you're headed down the road smoothly. If you don't, you will constantly go into the ditch. And our so-called contemporary church of today does not and cannot and will not articulate the components of Genesis 1 through 4, which fully explains why the young are giving up. If all they had was Genesis 1 through 4, I believe none of them 
these so-called influencers would say what they're saying today. But they don't have it because the contemporary church won't do it. And they don't do it and they won't do it because they can't do it. Why not? Because it takes a lot of work. You've got to ask a lot of questions to get through Genesis 1 through 4. You have to be Delmar. And don't worry about whether or not your question. I've asked millions of questions, as you know. I won't tell you about the ones that were, were stupid. But those stupid ones were valuable to me because I was able to identify them. There, the people say there's no such thing as a stupid question. That's not true. I've had many of them. What's, what's wrong is if you don't learn from your stupid questions and you can't identify them. <coughs> Excuse me. But the reason that these young are fleeing into the arms of atheistic communism or monistic philosophies is be, because they don't have the foundation of Genesis 1 through 4, or, or frankly, all of Scripture. And there's no denying that the mass, majesty and the complication of Genesis 1 through 4 has been lost. And intentionally, the church has intentionally just cast it aside. And they, they know what, they don't know what a treasure they, they have in their hands. They don't know it. And if they did know it, they probably wouldn't care anyway. And they, they senselessly throw it into the trash. And that's the condition of the modern contemporary church. Anyway, Delmore noticed that the, the purposed Element here. God established on purpose this discord between the tree of life and the tree of certain death. And Delmore wondered if there were two sides to the same tree. In other words, I had one tree with two conditions. So, in other words, the angle of approach is the defining aspect. As he said, if you arrive from the front, one would see the tree of life. Conversely, the path from the back reveals the tree of certain death. That was his question. And again, an outstanding question. Because he's wrestling with what's going on here. What did it look like? How does it work? Again, certain life presented in contrast, juxtaposition with certain death. God put them there. And Delmar then considered Christ attached to the timbers of the cross. And that, of course, is the crimson worm. That's how he got to the gourd, the crimson worm of Jonah in Psalm 22, 6. And that gourd, that poisonous gourd, just well, all you need to know about the poisonous gourd, Jonah 4, 10, is that the gourd rose up in darkness and perished in darkness. And that's what happened. It, that's Now you have enough knowledge to identify that that was a poison gourd. And that you can research the language and it will reveal to you that it is described as poisonous in the Hebrew. But Jesus, he is the tree of certain life. We got that. And he's revealed as certain life. So here's your questions that Delmar is wrestling with. Is the cross that Christ is attached to, because the worm, the crimson worm that bleeds life and creates new life while it attaches to wood, and Christ identifies himself as that crimson worm in death, that, that worm in this red liquid that holds new life attached to wood, is a picture, a portrait of Christ. So he is on the tree, and he is life. Now here's your questions. Is the tree, is the crucifix, I'm sorry, is the, is the cross, gosh, I'll get it right. I need non-medicine. This used to be medicine. I can show you that it's not medicine, but I'd have to spill it. It's fake medicine now. That is my lot. Nothing on that table can I eat. Nothing. Is there something I can eat? What is there, celery? Okay, great. I can eat celery, sunflower seeds, unsalted. What do we do? We mix salt, salted ones with them. We don't tell the electrophysiology department. <coughs> Let me re-ask the question. Christ is on the cross. Is the cross the tree of life, certain life, or is the cross the tree of certain death? I'm making you decide it's one of the trees. I'm making you decide, is there one tree or two trees? 
And I'm making you decide which tree is it. So what have you decided? Them's the choices and feel free to decide. And if Christ is the front of the cross, connected to the cross, nailed and bound, then what is the back? Who sees Christ? And who sees only the instrument of death? If you accept Delmar's analogy. And obviously, eventually, this line of questioning is going to go where? It's going to go to John 3. Let me put John 3 up here. It's going to go to Proverbs 30. It's going to go to Genesis 28. I think 12. Check it. 34, I'm pretty confident on. That's where you're going. Numbers 21. Let's put that in there. Because these two are the same, essentially. That's where you're going now. Numbers 21, because Christ is lifted up on a cross that is wood, that is made from a tree. Which tree is it? Tree of life or tree of death? Certain death, certain life. Which one is it? He's lifted up. That's how you get to John 3, Proverbs 30, Numbers 21. Because Numbers 21 is what? Yes, it is the lifted up bronze fiery serpent. All that see the bronze fiery serpent will live. Numbers 21, 8 through 9. John 3, Proverbs 30, provide information to the ascension and descension and the lifting up of Christ. They are explaining to Nicodemus the hypostatic union that God is man. And Nicodemus cannot figure a God-man construct. But Jesus is the symbol, I'm sorry, the symbol is the bronze fiery serpent lifted up by Moses that gives life to whoever looks at it and saved from the venomous snakes. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that symbol. Of that symbol. And so there you go. But don't assume that lifting up the bronze serpent on a pole, on a wooden pole by Moses is a quick solve. It is a picture of Christ crucified. So you've got that, I hope. Also, circumcision is a picture of Christ crucified. So go ahead and put them both together. There's universal agreement that Christ lifted up on the cross goes to Numbers 21, the bronze serpent lifted up on a cross. What does this killing of a bronze serpent, I'm sorry, killing of a serpent, a fiery serpent in bronze, and lifting, up, lifting it up, how is that a picture of Christ crucified? And again, is he on the tree of life or the tree of death? And what does it have to do with the first of the three signs of Moses? Because Moses had three signs. The first sign was what? Throwing a rod, a wooden rod, on the ground and it became a what? A serpent. So I have a serpent on a rod, he's lifting it up. You think Moses understood why? I guarantee you he did. Genesis 4, 1 through 9, Genesis 7, 8 through 13, the rod cast to the ground. Obviously, the fiery serpent is killed. How is it killed? It's placed into molten brass. What's the obvious questions? Why brass? What other choices do I have? Why did Moses, why was he told, instructed, it's not in the text, but clearly he was instructed to use brass? And this is lifted up, and all who choose, who effect an act of will, not a reproduction of will, a reproduction of memories, but an actual independent will. Everyone who effects an act of will, including the blind, who are part of the millions that are there, and all they have to do is look towards the serpent, How do they learn to do that? Because they're a huge crowd of people. Millions. How does Moses get that information out? Everyone hear him at once? That's a possibility. Does it move through the crowd? How how long is a period of time do I have before I die from the poison? And what does that have to do with the poisonous gourd? Oh, wait. But all you have to do is effect an act of the will. So you have to have an act of the will to effect. Does that make sense? 
sorry, stupid TV show. And look towards the serpent, even if you're blind, that is attached to the rod and is encapsulated in brass. Everyone who does that will be saved from the venomous serpent. But still, why brass? Where else is brass utilized in Scripture prominently? Raise your hand if you know it's Revelation. One through three. How come there, there's never anybody in the analog audience? I am convinced that everybody in the Internet audience raises their hand when I ask that question because there's no consequences. Here there's nothing but consequences, so no one raises their hand, which is an indication that you are wise. Basic rule of cliffside, never raise your hand. Yes, the answer is Revelation 1.15, Revelation 2.18, Thyatira. He tells Thyatira, he, they see him, he has feet of fine brass. That's why the serpent is boiled and, and covered in brass. Covered is a really good word. Covered. The fiery serpent, serpent is a very good word, Genesis 3, is covered in brass. And Christ is described as having feet like brass, pure brass, fine brass. The altar of burnt offering was covered, surrounded in brass. The outer court of the tabernacle of Moses stood on brass sockets. The laver was made of brass. The tabernacle of Moses was systematically interwoven with three materials, gold, silver, and brass. Gold is divinity. Gold is a biblical symbol of deity. The Godhood, the truth of the deity of Christ, the truth of the deity of the Godhead. The three persons that are one God. Silver is atonement. It's blood redemption. I see you. Thank you. I'll speed up. Brass, therefore, is what's left. I've got deity. I've got redemption. I have blood atonement. What's missing? What other aspect of God is here? You're absolutely right, those of you who are thinking it. Brass is judgment. The feet of Christ, the fine brass, the pure brass, symbolizes his authority and his will and his ability to judge. So I have a snake covered in judgment. And if you look at that, somehow it is a symbol of Christ. He is the judge of all, John 5.22. He is the ancient of days that sits on the throne. So there's your answer. Just in case you missed it, I resolved Delmar's questions in, by using Revelation 1 through 3, which is the topic subject that we've been in. I know. How does he do it? I don't know. How can this be possible? Delmar and I must have some kind of relationship where I said, go ahead and write me two letters about this, and I will then pretend that I maneuvered it into Revelation 1 through 3, when all along it's a conspiracy. It, it happens Sunday after Sunday. It's amazing. It's like the whole Bible is interconnected. Newton's law. Who saw that coming? This is a perfect time to play my theme song. If only I had a theme song. I need a theme song. People have suggested them to me, but I... I can't get past the two theme songs that I would have picked for myself. I also picked them for my grandsons. I wanted them to be named after Amos Moses or Reuben James. The daughters-in-law were resistant. That's a euphemism for what they really are. But Amos Moses, of course, was Jerry Reed. My gosh, how could you not like Amos Moses? I rope round neck, throw him in a swamp. Boy! Great song. Alligator bit it. Left arm gone. Clean up the elbow. Named him after a man in the cloth. Called him Amos Moses. Now that's a theme song. Why wouldn't you want to be Amos Moses? I, want, I would have changed my name to Amos Moses if I could have got away with it. Room of James. That's a good theme song. And you get a sandwich. What more could a boy want? Thank you, Grandpa. 
And I did not prevail. Anyway. <laughs> I have given you the solution to why the serpent is boiled in brass. I didn't lay it out for you. Feel free to wander off and find resolution. Now, along comes Mary Ann from Arkansas. She has the same questions as Delmar. It's not a conspiracy. It's people asking questions and figuring out questions. Along comes Mary is from Arkansas, no, not Ohio. So I'm presenting that as evidence that they don't know each other. Along comes Mary is associated with Arkansas. You're laughing. I hope so. I know. I know that. One might suggest that along comes Mary has an association in 1967. Someone besides you will write to me, but let, let the record show that Crazy Becky figured out the joke before anybody else. Someone will, will write me and extol my subtle brilliance here. Anyway, Mary wrote on the same day as Delmar, also about the two trees. I can't read it. She posited that the tree, that the three crosses of the crucifixion, Christ in the mist, one saved, one unsaved, would relate to the tree of certain life and the tree of certain death. Let me illustrate Matthew 25, 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, as opposed to when he did not come with his glory revealed. Get the difference? And all of the holy angels with him, as opposed to the unholy, unclean angels who are not with him. Do you see your two trees forming up here? Then, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Then and only then. All the nations will be gathered before him. Who gathers all these nations? And he will separate them one from another. And the, as the, a shepherd, Abel, divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right. And he will set the goats on his left. That's what Christ will do when he comes And all the holy angels are with him. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. The sheep are blessed. They inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. So, this is the Ancient of Days in his glory. Revelation 1 through 3, Daniel 7, Daniel 10. The judge with the feet of fine brass that, that emulsifies the fiery serpent. He's judging the Gentile nations. This is a court procedure. This is a court proceeding. Court is called to session. Court is in session. And the blessed are separated from the curse. Two trees. The millennial reign of the king of all things is to begin. And blessed are those who come to the 1335th day or the 75th day of the 75-day interval of Daniel 12.12. But for today, I have three crosses. One on the left of Christ, one on the right of Christ. Which one is the redeemed or the remembered thief on? I hope that's an easy question. I hope we get a hundred percent. Obviously, the remembered thief is on his right. But now we have a problem because right, from my frame of reference, is this one. That's, however, from your frame of reference, this is Einstein's theory of relativity. This is right. But you're wrong. My right is right. Your right is wrong. It's pretty simple. Because I have the holy dry erase marker. The unsaved thief on his left is there because of his willful, can't say that enough, rejection of the hand of life. He had access to the hand of life and he rejected it. On the basis of what? 
So we can conclude with some confidence that the tree of life would be on his right and the tree of death would be on his left from his frame of observation. And he's God and he is looking. He put the tree of life on his right and the tree of death, certain death on his left from where he sees them. His positioning, his frame of observation would be and is preeminent to all frames of observation. He is the ultimate observer. He is the ultimate, the, the first consciousness. First implies that is not correct. He is always the consciousness. He's outside of time. Before I forget, along comes Mary Ann. Also wanted to know why Satan was unable to recognize the infinite God of creation at Matthew 4. After all, Satan was the anointed cherub, right? He is the highest ranking. He had the most access to God. And one can easily make the case that Satan was beloved. Clearly he was beloved. Again, he has, of all the angels, he has physical access that is unparalleled. The highest ranking angel of all angels is, is Satan. And we find pictures of this, of Satan. We find it in Absalom. We find it in Achan. We find it in Judas. We find it in Cain. And therefore, when Satan fell, that grieved God. There's no question about that. That's portrayed by Achan and Joshua. That's portrayed by the farewell kiss of Judas and Christ. And though that's in its own category, Judas is in his own category because Judas is attached to Satan in an unprecedented manner. No one has been attached to Satan as Judas was, as is. And Christ is God himself in the flesh. This is the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. Back to David and Absalom. David and Absalom perhaps reflect God and Satan in their clearest form. David did not want Absalom to be killed because he was in an unsaved state. And yet somebody killed him. Now, when that person killed him, we still have a problem. Absalom is allowed to hang in a tree by his hair. Joab comes along and throws three spears through him against the will of David. And David mourns and grieves for Absalom because he loved Absalom, even though Absalom was dedicated to one thing. What was it? Killing David. Slaughtering everyone David knew. David loved him nonetheless. So you have a picture of Christ and Satan. Christ and Satan Judas. And David and Absalom. Anyway, did, along comes Mary, wanted to know, did Satan know who Christ was at Matthew 4? And I've decided long ago that no, he did not. He didn't know until he was cast away. And I've asked all the time. Right now we'll play the theme to Gilligan. When he was cast away, that blew his mind at that point. He had no idea that Christ was able to do that to him. And I always wanted to know, where did he send him? He had many choices. I always picked the lake of fire, but he could easily have sent him to the abyss. Christ does hide his true identity. It's, there's no controversy, no dispute about that. Why does he do that? Why does God hide? He hides because of this. Your will. You work that out. It's evidence that you have free will. And if you have free will, you have existence. It is evidence of your existence. We'll get to that next week. Satan knew God only <coughs> as God revealed himself to him in his glory. Revelation 1 through 3, Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Matthew 17. Satan had not conceived of the hypostatic union, the mystery of godliness. It is the greatest of all the mysteries of God, 1 Timothy 3.16. It is the take me of Genesis 15.9. No one got it. Your Bible doesn't even get it. Whoever translated it, go slap them. They say, take, what do they say at Genesis 15.9? Not take me. Bring me, yes. Which is a complete destruction of the meaning of Genesis 15:9 Take me Christ says You want to live take me How do you take him He gives himself 
No one fully understood the solution of sin to sin until Christ revealed it. Not one, but God only, the triune Godhead, knew this mystery. And Satan only recognized God in his glory, not in his hidden humanity. Okay? Back to Delmar, and along comes Mary. There are, are there two trees or one tree? If there are two trees, what is the distance between them? And I have long proposed that Adam was between Eve and the tree of life. So there's a significant distance between them. She takes from the tree of certain death and she can go, she has to go to an area that Adam is in, but she can easily circumvent him, but she doesn't. She goes right to him and hands him the fruit. That is a, he's a barrier, if you will, but again, you can easily get around him, but she did not. Eve came to Adam and willfully gave Adam the fruit, which is an act of contrition and remorse, as well as brilliance. Something I need to explain, and I will soon. Is the tree of the knowledge of good from evil, an evil creation, an evil tree? Did God make an evil tree? If he did not, and he did not, then you have to figure out how it... It's a binary question. Check yes or no. But... uh, If you check that it is not an evil tree and don't raise your hands, then you've got to figure out how it's not evil. A couple of things to consider. Genesis 3.17, Genesis 3.22, Jeremiah 32.35, Matthew 19.17. That's to give the Internet a head start. I'm assuming you don't need it. Obviously, the trees are in a condition traceable to a cause. By that, I mean something has occurred that necessitates, bad word, because I'm talking about God and outside of time. Something has occurred, and I'm saying necessitates because I know it's wrong. Two trees being placed into the garden, a right and a left from God's frame of observation. He defines his right from his left. Who else has been divided as an aside, which is really a kind way of saying, by the way. It's a fake, by the way, as an aside. Who else has been divided? Is it only humans that are divided? Is anybody else going to get divided? Do I have holy and unholy angels? How did they get divided? Based on what? What necessitated two trees? What's the cause? What is traceable? This is a condition. What is it traceable to? In other words, determine that which is created, which created the residue, the ashes, if you will, and then results, that then results in the two trees. Obviously, I have long proposed that Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, the fall of Satan, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, the five I wills of Satan, Genesis 3, 14 through 15, where Satan uh, uh, lies, Luke 10, 18 through 21, Revelation 12, 4 through 8, Satan is thrown out of heaven, Satan and his angels. There's a division there. I've said that is the solution to all of this. Astonishingly, Shockingly, some disagree with me. I know I have put many efforts to assuage their predetermined positionings. Pre-selected, I would say. And some many are undetoured, and I, how can this be? The point, yay, finally a point at the end of the lecture. Find for yourself the condition that led to the establishment of the two trees in the garden. Once you have that, then see if it fits with two trees or one tree. And then see if it solves the question of the nature of the tree. Is it good to display will? Because that's what these two trees are doing. Is that good or evil? I put it another way. Is the tree of certain death good? Does the Bible say that the physical death of man is good? Because he does. says it's for your sake. How is it good? Is your question. First figure out what caused this. What's it traceable to? Did Adam need two trees? 
Who needed two trees the most? Who's there? Who saw them made before Adam even saw them? Answer those questions, then move along to whether or not the tree is good and evil.